Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey guys and girls, my name is Philip McKernan. I am the author and founder of One Last Talk, the book and the movement. If you want to learn how to connect with not just other human beings, but yourself in this world and meaningful work and meaningful relationships around you, check out the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey there, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be an awesome, awesome guest. And I, I know I say that every week, but I just can't help but be excited about every guest that I bring on, <laughs> which is one of the cool things about having your own show is that you get to make the decision on only bringing on people who actually get you excited about things. So today I get to bring on a friend of mine, Philip McKernan. Philip is the author and the creator and founder of the book and movement One Last Talk, where he helps you turn your mess into your message, I guess you could say. He helps you find your deepest struggle and helps you turn it into your best story, really. And he works with entrepreneurs, business leaders all over the world. He's an inspirational speaker, writer, filmmaker. And uh, he helps people really seek clarity about their future. And uh, he helps people remove mental roadblocks and really helps them see things that they are not seeing. And a lot of times it's even those things where they don't even want to be seeing it. They 
come in for a different problem and he points out a problem that's actually deeper that they really need to be addressing. So he does some really deep work with people. And look, this is not somebody who I typically would bring on the show because a lot of these people, I think, don't have the actual real life experience to be able to do this effectively. And I have seen Philip do his work. And I, I think that his clientele speaks for itself. He's worked with the Canadian Olympic team and the Pentagon. He's done speeches and coaching for professional sports teams. So the, the guy definitely knows what he's talking about. I've seen him work with people before, and he's a tremendous author and really just an all-around cool guy just to hang out with and everything. So I know that you're going to get a lot, a lot, a lot from this talk. Just a couple of things that we mentioned here on the show is how your pain is what makes you who you are and allows you to become the best version of yourself. We talk about how he got his first book deal, which is a really interesting story you're going to want to tune into. And then guys, we talk about networking in a way like I've never talked about it before. So you are not going to want to miss this for sure. You're going to want to tune into this episode. But before we get into that really quickly, uh, look, you listen to this show for a reason. Something about the title Build Your Network resonated with you, which means that uh, you're kind of like me. You realize that the most important factor that contributes to your success is your network. Your network is your net worth, you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. However you want to put it, being around good quality people makes you a better quality person. Bottom line, period, end of story. And so after years of testing and learning and growing and implementing, I finally put together an all-encompassing training called Explode Your Network. It's a complete framework that's guaranteed to exponentially grow your connections, level up your inner circle, and shorten your runway to success without annoying all of your contacts or printing a single business card. So this is everything I know about networking connection all in one single place. And I'm tacking on a private community in addition to the material itself. So you'll learn, learn, learn how to do it the right way. And then you'll be able to implement it immediately with a community of like-minded people around you who are also going through this content. So if any piece of content that I've ever released has added some value to you at all, then please stop procrastinating. Take action. Take control of your own network and head over to travischapel.com slash explode to start investing into what we both know to be the most important aspect of your career, which is your network. And now here is my chat with Philip McKernan. Philip McKernan, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. So there's a lot of a lot of things that we're gonna be able to get into here in a second. But before we do that, I kind of want to go a little bit, well, let's let's say a lot of bit back and uh, figure out exactly what brought you to this point in your career. So let's go back, way back, and uh, tell me what life was like for let's say 12 year old Philip McKernan. What what did life look like for you? It was scary, I would imagine. I don't mean imagine. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to go back to that point. It's 12 years old, I was heading into high school, which to me was prison for six, seven hours a day, basically going in to be told you know, uh, what to learn. At that point, I was a Catholic, not because I wanted to be, because I was told to be. My name was Philip, not because I chose it, because that's what I was told. I lived in a particular part of uh, the country of Ireland, the island of Ireland, because that's where my parents wanted to live. So I would imagine that, or go back to that point, it's a time where I felt that 
I was being told what I can and cannot do, who I am and who I am not. And I would imagine when I look back at that time, I imagine myself, and when I say imagine, I'm not trying to make it up. I'm just going back and I'm just doing my best to try and connect, is uh, feeling very, very disconnected and very lost, but not being able to articulate that. And not very hopeful about the future as a result of that. And just assuming that whatever path was laid out, that that was the path I was going, the trajectory in terms of where my life was going to go. Was there a lot of pressure on you to have life figured out pretty immediately? No, no, just other than self-pressure. My parents didn't put me under, under a whole lot of pressure in, in many respects. Academically, I couldn't really read and write. I was, I was very severely dyslexic, so that was a challenge in of its own. So my parents didn't put me under a lot of pressure. I didn't study. I hated books. I hated reading uh, primarily because I couldn't. And there was probably only one or two things in school that actually brought me some joy and I had a, had a couple of good friends and that, that could have kept me sane. Yeah. What were those one or two things that brought you joy during school? There was a religious class. So uh, I went to a Protestant school, which was interesting because it's unusual for a Catholic to go to a Protestant school in Ireland at that time in particular. And I didn't relate to the religious lessons. I couldn't relate to Catholicism and Christianity. I just didn't didn't connect with it. And I remember going down to the, I think they call him a chaplain, knocking on his door and saying, hey, can I come into your class? And it was for the Protestant kids. And he said, well, this is unprecedented and I want to make sure this is okay. And I got permission to do it. And I always remember remember that we would watch a movie like The Life of Brian and we would have an opportunity to debate. And that was the first place in school that I had felt heard. The other place was English. So I went to a lower level of English because of my dyslexia. But there was a teacher there called Trevor Garrett, who again saw me for who I was, not based his opinion on me, based on my academic ability. So those two very sacred places allowed me to start finding my own voice and realizing that I had a lot to say in the world and I had a lot to feel in the world. And whether people wanted to listen or not, that was the first time I was given that, I suppose, that stage to, to really start to think outside of what I've been told. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash 
Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. And did you realize that at the time or is that something that you look back on and go, man, that was definitely what was happening? No, I look, that's looking back. At the time, there was just this overwhelming excitement when I'd walk into that room. When I look back, I realized that that's what it was about. The reason I was excited is because I felt heard. I felt energized. I felt alive. I felt that I mattered probably for the first time in my life in some regards. And this is not down to some big negative thing that my parents treated me like shit and beat me up every day. It wasn't the case. My, my, my dad was absent a lot. Uh, my mother was there. I had a, an older brother who, who didn't treat me particularly well. So I went home. I didn't feel safe. And I went to school. I didn't feel safe. So it wasn't a particularly cool time at all. Yeah. Do you remember a specific time coming out of all of that? Was there like a moment where, where you just were felt more free like coming out of high school into college or anything like that? Actually, I remember I didn't go to college because, again, I couldn't because I, I failed pretty much every exam. So college was out for me. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I went to... Wait, wait, wait. You, you, you didn't go to college, but you're still successful? Uh, well, successful is all, successful is all relative. No, <laughs> Arbitrary, I, yeah. yeah. You, can't, you can't be successful unless you've gone to college. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry, there's definitely ahead. a sarcastic voice there. Actually, I, tell, I know exactly when it was. I was 14 years old and I went to New York on my own. And I went to, sit, to visit a friend, an older friend. And when I got to New York, I, I pretty much lied to everybody. I told my parents I was with this guy. And I told this guy I was meeting somebody else. And I remember getting a cab to pick me up. And I headed down to Manhattan. And I walked around Manhattan at 14 years old. Went to the UN building, walked around, had tons of cash. Because probably not a lot of cash. But for a, for a 14-year-old, I thought I had a ton of cash. And that was the freest I'd ever felt in my entire existence. That was when the world, my world, was blown apart to what's possible, what is out there that I didn't even know. And you just went back home after that or? Two weeks later, I went back home and I felt changed. I felt like, a, I honestly, as cliche as it sounds, I felt like a different kid. I felt like a different young man. I felt that I questioned the world. I think a lot of us don't put a lot of credence. We, we, we're, we're obsessed with action and I think action is very important. I'm all about action. But I think the most courageous part in any evolution and any change is actually beginning to question the current reality, the way things have been. That's the courage. The action is just the byproduct of that. And that was the first time I had the courage to question who I was and what I was here to do and to realize that I didn't have to do it the way it's been done. Right. So was there any sort of specific goal in mind at that point? Or when you went back home, was it just more this part of the world has opened up to me and I can't wait to be done with this school thing so that I can go pursue whatever that feeling was again? Yeah, there was no goal whatsoever other than preparing myself to go back to prison. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I say prison. I mean, I've, I, I work now in a lot of different prisons in a, in a volunteer context. And obviously, it's, it's very different. I'm technically allowed out of school at the end of the day. But as far as I'm concerned, as a, as a young man, I felt it was the place that stifled my creativity that uh, I look back and I, I really don't see any use for it. I just, I, I don't even understand why it exists anymore. And so we're actually at the end of this year taking our kids out of school because I want to try something different. I don't want to just assume that what I did, they have to do as well. Even though school has moved on and the school they're in is, is pretty cool and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't have any real dreams and aspirations at that point. Goals and the idea of what was next. Actually, at one point at a very earlier age, I don't think I've ever shared this publicly ever in any podcast, I wanted to be a priest, which is like my friends would laugh at me now. Not, not there's anything wrong with priests, but I think it was just given the opportunity to speak and to share and to, to some extent teach and hold a, a sacred space. And yet religion doesn't come into my work. Spirituality has a major place in my life, but not formal religion. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and I can resonate with that by the way, cause I actually went to four years of Bible college to become in like a youth pastor in a Christian ministry setting. So definitely can, can resonate with you there. There's just something about being able to be put in that sort of a leadership position. And at my context at that period of time in my life, that was the only way that I knew that was possible. I didn't go to personal development seminars or woo woo hippie things that I looked at like back then that was how I looked at them was was like that. So that was out of the picture in terms of being in a leadership role. The only way real way to be in sort some sort of a leadership role where you get to get up in front of people and teach and share and things like that was in that ministerial position. And so that's kind of what fed into my decision making in that process as well. But so coming out of high school, then not really dreams, aspirations, nothing like what do you do at that point? If, you, if you're, you're not going to college, you don't have all these like entrepreneurial dreams already, then what do you do? I got a job. Um, I started driving a little van around Dublin um, and around Ireland. And I would do everything from merchandising to promotional stuff to packing shelves. And I did that for a number of years. And then I basically just that sent me on a trajectory of this, you know, kind of sales role, if you like, working with the vitamin company, working in the wine business, and then ultimately working in the coffee business. And my life was, was kind of, you know, pretty much set that I was going to be selling some type of consumer product in retail in Ireland. Um, I was never going to leave Ireland. But I did, one thing I started to do a lot was travel. When my friends were in college and I was making money, I traveled. I mean, I've traveled to 85 countries around the world at this point in my life. I've I've lived in, in parts of them. I've adventured in them. I now bring clients all over the world to different parts of, you know, amazing places that can blow them open. So I believe that, and people say, oh, travel's the answer. And I know, no, it's not. It's how you travel. I think it's not just traveling. It's, it's the way in which you're in relationship to travel. So to me, I think travel gave me a different education. It kind of blew me open again to what's possible, building on the, on the conversation around that, you know, being in New York when I was 14 years old. Yeah, this is something that's always fascinating to me, Philip, because it seems like with some people, they have the ability to make a decision to change something that they don't like. And other people don't have that ability for whatever reason. And I don't, I'm not sure. And I'm, this is what you do for a living. So you can talk into this a lot better. But I'm not sure if that's something that's more personality wise, or if it's something that's learned, or if it's what exactly that factor is. But uh, you were obviously doing something that didn't resonate with you a lot. And then eventually said, this isn't something that I want to do anymore. So can you walk me through that process of from like the first time that you realized that I don't want to do this until you realize that there's something else out there? And then how did you pursue that? Yeah, I'd sum it up in this one quote that I use, and it's in the absence of clarity, take action. So I think one of the biggest reasons that people don't take action is they say they don't know the action to take. And I go, any action is better than inaction. Any action, any, anything other than the status quo is better as long as you're aware the status quo is not working for you. So in the absence of clarity, take action. So even if you're not 100% clear, the only thing that brings clarity is additional action. So take the action, execute, pull the trigger, jump off the cliff, whatever it happens to be. And if it goes to shit and it's a disaster, well, then you have clarity. You know what to, what not to do. You know it didn't work. And if it goes amazingly well, well, then you have clarity. So one thing that has stuck by me is the one thing that I, I'm incredibly proud of, and again, I don't say that lightly, of myself in the journey is the willingness to stop and ask very simple questions. So for example, I did a post on Facebook two days ago about me as a parent as it relates to my little girl. And the question I ask myself is, am I content with my role in her life right now? And the answer to that question is no. 
Absolutely not. And it doesn't mean you can skin it whatever way you want. You can justify it to hell and back. You can say things like, oh, but I'm building a business and I'll have time to come back with her and I'll have all this freedom. Or you can say things like, well, she doesn't need me that much now. And you can say, well, I'm a better father than my friend John. And you can justify it to hell and back. It doesn't matter. The question and therefore the answer within yourself is all that matters. Am I content with my role in my daughter's life right now? Yes or no? Do not give yourself a gray answer, an opportunity to skip out, to stand on that fence in between the yes and the no. And the answer is no. Then immediately you can go to a place of either curiosity and ask questions about how I can do it differently, or you can do what 99.9% of the population do is beat the shit out of yourself, be shameful, have regret around your, your lack of connection with your kid or your lack of engagement, and then wallow in that for the next 10 years. And all that simply does is actually accelerates and fuels more shame and more regret. What I do is I try to get people, judgment is probably the greatest block and inhibitor to growth. Okay, because what happens is if there's judgment present, there's no growth. Can I give you a quick example? It's a little obnoxious story, which I made up. Every story I typically use is is factual. But I made this story up as about this incessant need humanity has not to see how good they are and how much, what the impact they can make. And the story I used to illustrate this to a client who just keeps judging himself. I said, you know how bad you are? I said, if I brought you to my home and gave you a daffodil bulb and said, plant that in the ground, and you plant it in the ground and you put the beautiful soil over and you just patted it down. And I said, look what you've done. He'd go, yeah, but I can't see anything. I can't see anything. And then I call you back and I, I'm not a gardener, so it just doesn't matter with the dates. I call you back four weeks later and that beautiful green bud is bursting through the soil. Life is exploding into the world. And I look and say, hey, you're not doing that, but look what you create. Look what you helped create. Look at your part in that. And I said, this is how negative you are on yourself in life. You'd go, yeah, but there's no flower, is there? There's no flower. And he's looking at me, he goes, am I this bad? And then I said, I call you back four weeks later and there's this beautiful yellow flower that's blossomed, that's blown open. Pollen is pouring out of it. And look at what you, you helped create. Look at that flower. You turn around to me and say, yeah, the flower's going to be dead in four weeks from now. People are unwilling to see the goodness in themselves. They're unwilling to see how the, the impact that they can make. And when they're judging themselves, there is absolutely zero growth in that context. Why do you think that is? People don't like themselves. People don't value themselves. People don't love themselves. People don't respect themselves. The biggest issue in the world right now, and I don't give a shit who you talk to, I've worked with some of the wealthiest men on earth. I've worked with some of the best athletes on this planet. I've worked with men and women who are aspire to make their first thousand dollars. I work with couples who are great and who have challenges. I work with children. I work with teenagers, thousands of people around the world. At the end of the day, if someone said to me, what's the number one challenge that every single human being face, and that is self-worth, you know, how they view themselves in this world. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how famous somebody is. When the lights are off and they're lying in their bed at night with their own company, which many of us struggle with, which is an indicator about how we struggle in our own skin, they struggle with accepting who they are and being proud of who they are. I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about a deep sense of acceptance and a deep sense of being able to therefore forgive and to move on and to to have a sense of self-respect. And again, it's not the cool, sexy stuff to talk about because most people don't want to address that. They want the, the next life hack and they want the next ability to make a million dollars doing nothing on a beach, you know, spending, you know, X amount of hours a week. 
And yet, eventually, it'll all come back to this. If you don't like who you are, it doesn't matter what you do in this earth, it's never going to be enough. Yeah, they, they want the five steps version of the tips, right? Like, give me, give me the seven steps. I'll just do the seven steps or the 12 steps or the however many steps there are now. Yeah. Where do you think that that dislike comes from? Like, it, it seems that we're in the age where a lot of this is just more prevalent than it's ever been because of how immediate the lack of acceptance can be in terms of like posting something on social media and not getting any likes on it and then talking down on yourself for the next couple of hours because nobody liked your picture and all this nonsense that people attribute their self-worth to. I assume that all of this, I mean, nothing's new under the sun. I assume all of this stuff, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, so you could probably talk into this, that all this stuff is not just new to the age of social media or more prevalent than it was before. Is it something that just is intrinsic inside of us as human beings? Is it something that our parents did or society did growing up? Or like, where does that just internal disgust with ourselves come from? Yeah, I think it's been exposed by I think social media is, is exposing it to some extent. I don't think it's it's just a recent phenomenon. And I think when I use things like people sometimes are disgusted in their own skin, they hate each other, they hate themselves or dislike themselves or whatever, don't turn around and listen to this and say, hey, that's not me. I'm not even talking about disdain. I'm talking about a sense of just distrust within yourself. So when we think about trust, you know, how many people truly trust themselves? We think about trust as often or almost always external, extrinsic, like in terms of my bank manager, would I trust John with my children? Would I trust this person with the keys of my home? Would actually do we trust ourselves? It comes from a few different places. Number one is, first of all, going back to school, as I call it, prison. Um, we were never taught ever when I walked down the corridors of my school, there was never a doorway that says, hey, come in and get to know who you are. And to come in, come in here and begin to explore the world as you see it. We were too busy having information shoved into our face about how the world is from a historic precedence, geographical perspective, you know, even a poetic perspective, whatever. In other words, everyone else's opinions. Like, but where, where was my sense in all of that? Where is your sense in all that? So again, we're not, we're not taught from an early age to understand and to make choices, to start to, to, start to explore, you know, and to, to imagine what's possible for ourselves. Number two is, we're too busy trying to fit in. So as we get to the age of 10 years old, if not even sometimes earlier, we start to put on these, these invisible masks on the playground to fit in in school. We start to wear them into the house. To, so my dad and my mom would love me and see me the way you know, I want them to see me, to be proud of me. And before you know it, we're wearing all these different masks and we've, we've become the different things. We've become parts of other people. Modeling is fundamentally has some upside, but a massive dark side. And modeling is when you start to model the bits of all these successful people that you see. And before you know it, you've modeled this guy, that guy, this girl, that girl. And then before you know it, you look in the mirror and you go, well, what part of any of this success is actually me? And then on top of that, everyone has had trauma. I have not met a human being that hasn't had trauma. And the person that's the most dangerous, the person that will struggle with trauma the most is the person that says, hey, I didn't have a traumatic childhood. In fact, my childhood was amazing. Well, you know what? With respect, good luck. If that's the story you're holding on to, I wish you the best. You cannot navigate this world as a human being without experiencing trauma. The problem with trauma is that what we do is we contextualize it and compare it against somebody else's. So I say, well, hang on, dyslexia is not the biggest deal in the world. When I think about what Travis went through and the car crash or losing his mom or sexual abuse, whatever it happens to be, you know what? Dyslexia was the biggest trauma that I could have gone through because for me, 
ostracized me from society. It made me feel completely stupid. It made me feel deep down like there was something deeply broken in me. And the schooling system, and I'm not blaming, I'm just saying school, I don't believe served me at all. But there was no one to wake up a young child and say, hey, buddy, you were born with dyslexia because you've got an amazing gift. Because of dyslexia, you see the world or hear the world in a very different way. My wife says to me, my greatest gift is my ability to listen. I actually believe my ability to hear is extraordinary. And what I mean by that is somebody can tell me 10 words, someone can tell me entire story, and what I hear and therefore feel is is often something completely different. So I think it's a number of different things. And then the final piece is every single person on earth does things and has done things in their past that they're deeply ashamed of, that they feel guilty about, but we don't process them. We don't forgive. We don't move through them. We bury them and try to pretend they don't exist. And that comes back to haunt us every single day moving forward. Yeah. So something that you say pretty often, Philip, and uh, I'd like you to expound on is your greatest gift lies next to your deepest wound. And I think that goes along with a couple of things that we were just talking about. So can you expound on what you mean by that? Yeah, 100%. It's, it's basically, I mean, somebody says, why do you do what you do? And people think, you know, I, I set up a coaching business and an event business because I want to either make money or I want to make an impact in the world or whatever. And I do want to make an impact in the world. But in the end of the day, if you really think about it, I'm essentially creating the space for other people who, you know, so they don't have to go through the pain or the disconnectedness. So for example, like 38 years of my life, I felt I would do it. I was doing everything on this earth for other people rather than me. And at 38 years old, I really started to pivot into the work that I do right now. I'm 46 years old, probably even a little bit before that. And now my work is all about waking people up to what's possible in their own lives to make sure that they don't live with any type of regret today or in the future, that they start to uncover the gift and not just walk this earth executing their talent. But in the end of the day, if, I, if you really think about it, I'm really presenting the world with the things that I didn't have, the mechanisms, the support, the questioning, the, 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 and the deep challenging. I deeply challenge my clients, but I also deeply support them. So in many ways, if you want to impact the world, that's great. But if you want to impact the world and align your impact to who you are, so what you're doing is an extension of who you are, what you'll find is the thing that you bring to the world is the thing that you almost didn't have yourself. The pain that you're trying to alleviate in the world is the pain you experienced yourself. And that's talk, that's alignment in addition to impact, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that that I've been toying with or wondering just through books like yours, through your book, One Last Talk, which is an amazing book, by the way, through One Last Talk, through some of your speeches, and and really through just a lot of the other connections that I've been able to make after starting this show is if you are in a position where you are not working around something that has to do with that pain or that secret or that trauma or whatever it was in your past, does that mean that you're doing the wrong thing? Or is that just something that you should be aware of and find a way to integrate that into your life somehow? Like, like, does that make sense? So because no, totally everybody did their passion, quote unquote, passion, or whatever, then we wouldn't have dump truck drivers. And we wouldn't have janitors, like the world would cease to exist the way that it is, because everybody's just out chasing their passion, or whatever. But I think that there's a level of practicality. But there's also a level of like doing something that fulfills you and makes you happy at the end of the day. So can you talk into that? 100%. I'd love to. So here's what a lot of people have probably heard. Number one, you're doing the wrong thing. And secondly, is my 972 step 
system to success and passion will actually give you the answer. So the first comment by saying, yes, you're doing the wrong thing, yet again, makes us feel inadequate in the world. So if someone's driving a dump truck and they know they don't want to, you know, here's another podcast interview that, that makes me feel even worse and more inadequate about myself. So I'm obviously joking. Uh, obviously, my, my sense of humor, I need to work on that for sure. Anyway. <laughs> So are they doing the wrong thing? Absolutely not are they doing the wrong thing. If you want to be a janitor, a painter, a dump truck, even if you don't like it, that is your prerogative. That is your choice. Who am I or any of us to say you're doing the wrong thing? How dare I would never dare say to somebody you're doing the wrong thing. However, however, you need to be in touch with the cost of doing something every day that doesn't bring you joy. And people don't take the time to take a step back. They often don't even recognize that there's a cost. You cannot go and do a job for seven, eight hours a day, four, five, six, or even seven days a week and do something you do not want to do without paying a cost. A cost that is showing up today, a cost that is going to show up tomorrow, or a cost that is going to manifest itself and explode onto the deathbed when you're, you're taking your last breath and you're looking at your life and you're reflecting back on your life. There is a cost. So be aware of the cost and then make a conscious choice. Is this cost worth taking? That's number one. Number two, and if you say, I'm doing this job every day and I hate it, but it's making me enough money. So in 20 years, I'm going to have the freedom to go and do what I want. And you're still telling me that story. You are bullshitting yourself. You are absolutely lying to yourself. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying it's wrong. What I'm saying is it comes at a cost that I believe on occasion is often not worthy of paying. And the last piece of this is this, and this is the critical piece. If you go and do a job or you're doing, you run a business that you do not love, doesn't bring you joy, and you've got to manage your expectations, don't expect to be happy and fully fulfilled and feel that the world owes you anything. So readjust your expectations and say, you're not going to be miserable. You just won't be able to operate at the same frequency as somebody else that you know who's in alignment in their work. And the last piece of this is that when people do that and they're building a widget that they hate and they're operating a business they hate, what happens is they put undue expectations on the two other relationships in their life, the relationship to the people they love, their business part, their lover, their, their kids, to make them even happier. And they put this unwilling, unreasonable expectation on their own shoulders to be something they're not. So just manage the expectations. If you can't find a way to do it full-time, at least do it part-time. In other words, I said to a guy one day, I said, you've got a guitar. He goes, yes, I didn't realize you were, you were a musician. And he goes, oh, I'm not really, because I've never been paid to play. And I went, oh, I never got that email. I didn't get that text. And I certainly didn't get the fact that says in the universe today, you can only be something on the basis you get paid to do it. We're literally not nurturing our soul, our creative being by doing pottery, then painting, then, then writing poetry because we can't monetize it. I mean, that is a tragedy. And it's that nurturing of self, of soul, of creativity that gives you the, the platform to create ideas that'll change the world and change your world as a result. Yeah, I love that. I love, I love what you say about changing your expectations because I'm, I'm a big logic kind of a guy and that just makes logical sense to me. People have this expectation out of life to be the happiest that they are and most fulfilled that they are. And they check off the list. They do the things, right? They get married, check. They get a job, check. They have kids, check. They have to pick a fence, check. They got the lawnmower to mow their grass on a Sunday afternoon, check. They got the afternoon nap. They do, they do all the things, right? And then they don't feel that feeling. 
and then sitting there wondering why, but then looking at what their job actually does, the thing that they spend literally 40 hours plus every single week doing is something that does not fulfill them or make them happy in the least. And it just just makes sense. Like if you, you can't expect to be the happiest person in the world, if you're doing something for the majority of your week that by definition makes you unhappy. So I, I love what you say by, I think it's just one of those two things. Like you got to either change your situation or you got to change your expectations, but you can't do neither one of those and expect the world. So I, I love what you're saying going along those lines. So you said something a little bit further back in this uh, in this chat, Philip, that I want to ask you about because you were talking about asking yourself the hard questions and being aware of the actual answer. So not living in this uh, this gray area, this this gray area of, uh, well, you know, it's because of this, it's because of that. It's just answer the question, yes or no, like what you were saying. Am I content with the way that I'm involved in my daughter's life? It's a yes or no question. There's no, well, I'm a better father than that guy or whatever. That's, that's no question. Before you go on to the question, can I just explain very quickly on that? People will be listening, particularly very heady, very logical people will be listening. Well, life's not like that. It's not simply black and white. And here's where it gets really dangerous. If you don't ask yourself those questions and often give yourself a black or white answer, here's what happens. Well, then you give yourself an answer that requires you to do nothing differently. And the way, the best way I can describe this is an alcoholic comes to my house comes to my office and says, knocks on the door and says, right, McKernan, do your stuff, do your magic, you do your voodoo stuff, whatever, do your coaching, whatever you, whatever terminology they come in with. And I go, great. So what's the problem? And they say to me, oh, my wife thinks I'm an alcoholic. And I go, okay, great. So you want to work in alcoholism, addiction, which I think is a byproduct of being out of alignment in our own lives, but that's a separate conversation for a different day. And I go, so you're an alcoholic. Oh, no, no, I don't think I am. Like I didn't drink last night and I didn't drink last Wednesday, but my wife thinks I'm an alcoholic. So can you fix me? And I go, no, there's nothing to fix. Number one is you're not broken. Number two is you don't think you're an alcoholic, so there's no point working on it. So if he or she, you're either an alcoholic or you're not. You're, you're, there's no such thing as an in-between alcoholic. And, and there's the same principle. And it's our unwillingness to answer, to ask the question because we don't want the fucking answer. That's the bottom line. And I said to a girl one day, she's talking to this guy, and I said, do you love him? And she goes, what do you mean do I love him? Oh, he's a really nice guy. I didn't ask you if he's a nice guy. I said, do you love him? And she said, no. And I said, well, do you want to be with him for the rest of your life? And she said, no. And she was semi-depressed in that moment because she realized she's going out with somebody that she didn't love. She was trying to justify his existence and their connection. She's now with somebody she truly loves. So the upside of asking these semi-difficult questions is what's possible on the other side. And the pain, the short-term pain of asking a difficult question and making a change is nothing close to the longevity of the agony and the cost that you're going to pay every single day of your life and everyone else around you witnessing you in a semi-happy a semi place, a kind of a numb, chilled out, zoned out place for the rest of your life. You're not going to inspire anybody. What's up, everyone? Just wanted to take a quick second and give a shout out to my favorite podcasting app, Himalaya. If you're not listening to podcasts on this new app, you're definitely missing out. It's like a social media app, but for podcast listeners. Follow your go-to shows, like and comment on your favorite episodes, and download professionally curated playlists made just for you. So head on over to your app store or Google Play store and download Himalaya today and thank me later. So coming down, this is the question for you because 
this has got to be one of the most difficult things to do with yourself. And I think that it's not just going to happen by saying like, okay, time to be honest with myself and then think about it for a second. So is there a practice that you do, like maybe getting out by yourself or going somewhere or taking off to a different place, reading a book, like listening to something? Is there a practice that you do that would help you to be able to gain clarity and be truly honest with yourself when you ask those types of questions? Yes, absolutely. And often people think that my answer to this is very counterintuitive. It's incredibly intuitive, but it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Number one is stop consuming information for even a short period of time. Stop reading copious amounts of self-help book, the next big dream, the next whatever. Don't go to live events just for a period of time because a lot of live events are not set up with this intention. What they ultimately end up leaving is people walking out the door feeling more inadequate about their lives as opposed to absolutely truly inspired. And I'm not saying there's not good value out there, but I think people are consuming information like this at the speed of light. And the more information, and I, you know, for those of you who watch the video, you'll know what I'm doing. But for those of you who are listening on audio only, if that happens, is I'm taking my hands and I'm pushing them down through my body. The more information you're taking in, the more you're suppressing the clarity and the intuition and the knowing that you already have inside of you. What I do is I, I don't do a lot of, like I don't meditate and stuff for like that in the traditional sense, but every quarter, every six months, I take two or three days out to myself and I go to a little cabin in the middle of nowhere and people go, oh, so cool. And they get out their pen and paper and they're just about to take this, the notes of the sixth principles that I live by, or the six methods that I have, or the six rituals that I, that I, that I live by. And someday I'm going to say, you know, what I do is I, I strip off naked, I chew Korean ginseng and I hang upside down for four hours a day. And I guarantee, you know what, there'll be somebody in the audience who go, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to try that. And the point is, I do nothing. I do nothing and I do, I do things. Obviously, I eat and whatever, but I don't do it. And people go, oh, yeah, 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 but you brainstorm. I go, no. But you plan? No, I don't. But you read a self-help book? No, I don't. You meditate? No, I don't. I just go and I just intuitively wake up and decide what I'm going to do in that moment or not. And if an idea comes, great. But I'm not going with an expectation that I'm going to create the next greatest idea that's going to make me or the world a million dollars or make me or the world a better place. If that expectation that you're, you're yearning and desiring the outcome, it actually prevents you from finding anything and often. So creating space for yourself is one of the most lost gifts and opportunities and arts on earth. And the reason that we don't take space for ourselves without a big expectation around it is we don't see the value in doing that because it's not productive. And I've got 20 other things I could be doing that could be making money or making a difference. And also the reason that we don't see a value in it is because we don't see a value in ourselves. And as one of my clients said, McKernan, you're asking me to go away for two days and spend it on my own. I can't even get into the car without the radio on. That's how uncomfortable I am within my own skin and in myself. And that's the point. I want to expose how uncomfortable you are to yourself so you can start to make the changes necessary to make sure that you can negate or dissolve a lot of that in the future. Yeah, that's so crazy. And I, I definitely resonate with that because that's that's where I feel like I used to be. That's just whenever there was silence, there was always, that you just got to put something on in the background at least, right? And it, I used it as an excuse to just say, well, I got just got to keep my mind busy or I got to keep myself occupied. But it wasn't really that. It was just a distraction from letting myself talk to myself. And getting into those situations has been life-changing for me, just going out by myself, not doing 
anything with anybody turning my phone off and just sitting there and having some some time with myself. And I, I think that it's important for me to note anyway, and this is just from my personal experience, Philip, you might have something different to say, but I just say you ha- it has to be done frequently because the first couple of times that I did it, I was expecting something you know magical to happen. Just like, well, hey, I'm, I'm going to go out by myself and I'm going to have this epiphany and and then uh, I'll, I'll have the answer when I, when I come home after a day or two. And then I would do that. And then I wouldn't get anything. And I was just frustrated with that. And I can't even relax right. You know what I mean? And there's just, it was just this inner trust of saying, you know what, if I keep doing this, if this is something that I truly believe in this practice, then I just got to keep doing it over and over again. And eventually it got to the point where I would have some of those, but, and, and it's, it's not like you, I feel like it's not something that I'm getting better at. I just think that it, sometimes you get stuff, sometimes you don't get stuff. And you, the only way to know that if you're going to get stuff is you got to just keep doing it over and over again. Yeah. It's funny. I think the greatest growth comes in the gaps and the little anecdotal story that comes up is about, I think it was about two years ago, I run a week long experience called Brave Soul in the West coast of Ireland. And every year I bring a group away and this girl comes out of the little patch cottage in the, right on the ocean. And she said to me, uh, what are we doing now? So we're going for like a really long hike. And she goes, oh, that's disappointing. And I said, why? She says, I thought we could do more classroom stuff or, you know, maybe I could just, you could give me some questions and I could stay here behind and do some work. And I went, I said, no, go put your hiking boots on and shift your ass basically and get back here. And uh, say four hours later with the mist pouring down her face, I just caught her eye to eye contact with her and I looked over and I kind of gave her a nod and she looked at me and she nodded back with the greatest, biggest biggest badass smile you can imagine. And what had happened was in her pursuit of chasing some aha or insight in the classroom and with the work that we're doing, which is unapologetically deep. She was like, she it's like anything. You chase something typically, unless maybe it's a lion, you chase a girl, you chase a guy, often they run away from you. And if you chase growth, you chase ahas, you tra- you chase insights, you chase your passion, often it, it runs away from you. So the pursuit has almost the a counterproductive context to it. And it was when she let go of that and says, you know what, we're not doing any more work for the rest of the day. And yet everything we do is the work. It is the work, as we call it. In the middle of this beautiful piece of landscape on this 5,000-year-old road, in the middle of the asshole of nowhere, we're walking through mud and fucking donkey shit and everything else. One of the questions she'd asked herself went from her brain and it dropped into her soul and she got blown open. And then all she wanted to do for the rest of the week was hike. No, no, I'm not, doing, I'm not doing any more questions. I just want to go on hiking. So she's so, God love her. My heart goes out to this girl and anyone like this because they're so logical. There's so many people living in their heads and it is an epidemic in the world. It is creating the greatest disconnective period in humanity. And we are slowly becoming more and more disconnected and we're looking for obsessing and looking for intellectual solutions for what are 99.9% of the time emotional challenges. Yeah. So you host these retreats and uh, do a lot of this deep work with with these people. And this is something that you and I talked about in person when we were at uh, Thrive Connect, one of my mentor Cole's events recently. And uh, it's something that I'm really huge on. Obviously, the show is called Build Your Network. It's about connections, about relationships, networking, different things like that. But in the end, it's it's really just all about human connection and having that ability to look at somebody as they are, see them as they are, take off the lenses through which you were taught to view other people and actually see that person as an extension of yourself. Can you talk about different ways that we might be able to go about cultivating genuine relationships with people better? 
Okay. So I think the biggest challenge in the world of relationships is, again, we're looking at these relationships externally. We're looking at my relationship with my daughter, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with our clients, my relationship with our new clients, potential clients. We're looking at relationships with joint ventures and partners and sports teams and, and whatever. And again, we, we skip one major step. And I'm going to leave God and, and religion out of it because I don't, I don't play in that territory at all. Uh, I don't think it's, it has a place in my work. But I believe the most important relationship on earth is the one that we have with ourselves. And we're looking and yearning to cultivate relationships externally with this massive amount of energy, but not many of us realize that we have a relationship with ourselves. Some of it's, sometimes it's shallow, sometimes it's very deep, sometimes it's very meaningful. And I feel that that's the place to start, in addition to continuing to be aware of other people and everything else. And for me, if you told me that eight, 10 years ago, I would have said, what a load of crap. Like, you know, I'll get back to that eventually. And how can you have a relationship with yourself? And that's so weird. And I didn't realize all of the different things that I'd held inside of myself, how disconnected I was from the most important human being in this world, in the context of my life, which at that time is me. So it wasn't until I started to do that kind of work did it allow me to show for other people. And I feel that there's a lot of energy a lot of attachment when it comes to relationships. So for example, a lot of single people that I work with, they're way too attached to finding a relationship. And some, some men or women listening to this today or tomorrow in the future are going to go, Jesus, that doesn't feel right. What if I'm like so focused, so determined, I put all my energy into this thing, surely I'll get what I want or surely I'll have a greater success. I disagree. You may find somebody Absolutely granted, but you may not find somebody that's aligned to you. So what I'm saying by this is if you feel you need someone on this earth in order to be happy, I feel that's a flaw. I feel that's dangerous. I feel you need to get to a point where you actually don't need anyone with you in this world to be happy, but you want somebody in this world. It's a very different energy. And I said to my wife about three years ago, I do not need you anymore. I want you in my life, but I do not need you. Now, she was a bit messed up about the whole thing. She thought I was divorcing her or something. It's a big difference. We have this over-reliance on people. So the, what happens is if I'm single and I'm determined to find a relationship, what ends up happening is my level of attachment to that outcome is going to blind me to some red flags I see in the relationship. And I'm going to ignore them because I'm in pursuit of the bigger picture and then what will happen is those red flags will come back to haunt me in two years, three years, four years, us collectively, me individually in our relationship. So I feel that when it comes to relationship, we're far too attached and we're also far too strategic. I find way too many people are going, yeah, I'm going to this networking thing and my goal is to give out four business cards, uh, get one joint venture partner and have one client. And if it works, great. I just don't believe in that. I believe go to this event, show up. If you meet people organically, great. And if you don't, and I've just got two major, well, one major franchise that I'm working with, sports franchise, another one that's, that's in Canada, smaller, but still nonetheless higher profile. And I didn't pursue either of those. And yet for years, I dreamed about working with professional teams and working with Olympic athletes. And that's what I'm doing now. Next week, I'm going out to the Olympic Center. It's a, a, I've been asked down to, down to visit it and um, in uh, Colorado Springs. And who knows what'll come from that, but I'm not going down with any goal any aspiration other than to show up and I'm just going to be as honest and as forthright and as truthful as possible and see what happens.
Yeah, I love that. I think it's because people compartmentalize and they put networking in this category over here by itself and then relationships in this category over here by itself. And so when they go to this business networking event, it's treated completely differently than when if they're going to the bar with their buddies, like they don't go there with the attention of like, all right, I got my buddy John coming, my buddy Bill coming, my buddy Joe coming, and uh, I'm going to talk to John about this and talk to him about this and talk to him about this. And then by the end of it, we're going to have this different connection. We're going to, we're going to have this conversation that's going to lead to insane amount of laughter and that's going to deepen our friendship. Like there's no plan. You're just going to build real genuine connection with actual human beings. But then when people go to this networking event, it's like, just like you said, well, I got 500 brand new business cards. I'm going to give them all out tonight. Even if I got to give out five of them to one person and then I'm going to barf out my elevator pitch and I'm going to get this partner here and we're going to book some business, sign some contracts. And it's just this complete disconnect between the two different activities. And what the whole goal of this show is to get people to start to understand that if you do the networking piece the right way. It looks pretty much the same as it does over here building friendships with your buddies. Well, if it, do, if it doesn't look the same, you're in trouble. Because what you're trying to do is tra- you're trying to be two different people. And therein lies the disconnect. In fact, Travis, I've never, I don't think I've ever shared this before, but when I signed my first book contract with John Wiley, the publishing house, we were at a, I was at an event. I shared a very deep, at the time, it was very embarrassing. I said, listen, I'm dyslexic, but I'm going to read a book. I'm going to write a book, I should say. And people literally laughed in the audience. It was about five or 600 people. I went to the washroom and a guy walks in and says, can we talk? And I said, well, maybe not right the second, but yes, I'm happy to talk. <laughs> yeah. Walk outside and he says, I'm a publisher. I'm involved in John Wiley, the publishing house, which I didn't even know who they were at the time. And we want to write a book with you. And I'm thinking, you don't even know me. He says, I don't care. I said, I just listened to you on the stage. We want to do a book with you. So we go for dinner that night and there's a girl beside me and her energy is weird. And then the, this publisher, this, this editor is, is to my right with John Wiley and he, he's the guy who signs off in books or not. And I'm sitting in the middle and I am, what we say is in Ireland, taking the piss. In, in America, we say making fun. I am ripping this guy apart. And I looked at one point and said, I said, that jumper, this, you know, this sweater you wear. And I said, did you inherit that from your grandfather? I mean, surely you didn't buy that thing. I mean, it's it's horrendous. It looks like a cloth that I would use to wash my kitchen. kitchen." And the girl next to me turns and goes, she whispers, she goes, do you know who that is? And I went, I've no idea what it is. He's an editor in John Wiley. I said, "He, he could have been Elvis. I couldn't give a shit. I ripped him apart. I mean, annihilated him. And at the end of it, he gives me a big, huge hug and off he went. And we signed a book contract maybe two, three months later. If he doesn't like me for who I am, well, then we shouldn't do business together. I think what we do is we alter our state. We suppress our personalities. We adjust our conversations. We're too strategic. We have a conversation. We may get an outcome. So somebody might say, hey, this is bullshit. I signed a book contract by being exactly that. Great. How's it working for you though? What kind of conversations are you having now? What kind of clients are you attracting? Is that the book you're really proud of? Energetically, you compromise who you are, you compromise the deal. And what did you rob yourself of by jumping the gun on something? Because I think people people look at it as a this is my one chance. Like you, you're at that you're at that dinner, right? And you want to impress this guy so much that this is my this is my one opportunity to see everything that I've done come into like fruition at this one moment. And it's just like that's not how it is. If this is what you're like really doing, if this is what you are truly modeling your life after and what you're chasing, there's going to be another opportunity, and it's probably going to be a lot better if the first one wasn't something that worked out. 
out. And I see people do this constantly, especially when it comes to like going to an event and they're trying to connect with the speakers at the event. And they, they force themselves into a situation where there's 12 people in line and they're just another person and they shake the hand, they grab the picture and then they're like, man, I finally connected. And it's like, no, you did not. <laughs> you did not connect. You just got a picture that if you think that person's got to remember like what, like who you are at the next event, like you're, you're mistaken. There's, there was a dozen other people that were in line right before you. You, you think that this is your one opportunity to meet this person. And if you don't do it, that you're not taking advantage or not, you're not reaching your potential. And it's just this total lie that we're telling ourselves. Who's the most attractive person at the bar? The guy, and let's just use a guy for, for and, and it might gross out some people, but just play with this for a second. The, the guy sitting at the bar, staring at the door, almost drooling, waiting for the right woman to come through the door so he can approach her, buy her drink, you know, sleep with her, date her, marry her, whatever it happens to be. The guy or the girl sitting at the bar who's angry, who's just come out of a relationship, who doesn't want to be with a man or a woman, who's sitting there with the one finger up, pointing at the door, going, F you, don't you come near me. Don't even say hello to me. Definitely don't look at me. And they're sculling their gin and tonic, whatever it happens to be. Or the person is sitting there, open to meeting somebody, but doesn't need a relationship, isn't drooling, isn't angry, but it's available. And I don't mean a single as in available. I mean available and open in life. And they're sitting there sipping their gin and tonic. And if you say hello to them, they'll say hello back. And if you don't say hello to them, they won't bother you. They're the most attractive person in the bar. And they're the most attractive person in the boardroom because they don't need the deal. They're open to it. They want it. They want connection, but they don't need it. That is the sexiest, coolest person on earth. And that is the person that gets 99.9%. And if you believe that you're not going to meet the speaker again or this opportunity, that you're driven from a deep place of scarcity, that there's not enough in the world. And that is more about you than the world. That's all about you and not about the world. Love it, man. There's so much good stuff that we could keep talking about. I got to ask you this question, though, um, before we jump off here, because it's the become kind of the staple question of the show. It's one I ask every single guest that comes on. I'm curious to hear your answer. Do you believe, Philip, that who you know or what you know is more important and why? I can only pick one or other. Yes. <laughs> got to put your feet to the fire. Yeah. If, if that's the choice, I would say what you uh, sorry, you know, who, who you know. People, yes. What would be the main reason for that? I mean, I, I look back over my life and in moments, the best way I can contextualize this for me personally, selfishly, is that when I look back at my life and I was at the lowest time in my life when I felt like I was unworthy and things weren't working out, the people around me who I knew, those close to me, believed in me when I didn't believe in myself and, and they, they lifted me up. And, and, and I can also spin that to a young man who literally knocked on my door yesterday morning. Uh, we arranged to allow him to come to my house for a coffee. And he walks in the door and he just finished uh, you know, a big degree and he's very educated. And he's more lost now than he ever was because he actually thought that the more educated he was going to be, the better opportunities he was going to have. So what he knows is tons but actually he's really struggling to find out what he wants to do with his life. So you can have the greatest knowledge base in the world, but if you don't know the people that are going to believe in you and support you and give you a voice. So for example, if you didn't ask me on a podcast here today, I wouldn't get an opportunity to share what I believe. And maybe even, I could, even if we can impact one person driving a car in Illinois in six months from now, mission achieved. I can have that information sitting in my house and it's a waste of time. So without knowing you, we don't get an, an opportunity to impact that person. Amazing. Amazing. Well, let's go ahead and move on here to the last segment here, Philip. Something I like to call the random round. Just a few quick random questions and quick random answers. You ready? Yep. 
what profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt? Being a full-time writer. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? It would be my 12-year-old self. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Video. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I wake up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee, and I decide what I want to do. I have no lists. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh my goodness. I don't have one. I have one that pumps me down. I have these very inspirational pieces of music that just ground me immensely, which in a way pumps me up, but I don't have that fire me up song. I just, I, it would be, it would be you too. It would be uh, this where the streets have no name would be the pump up song. If you like, what is something that you are just not very good at? Oh my God. Just one, just, just one. I know it's a long list. Yeah. Managing people. And as we get everything wrapped up here, Philip, what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most? OneLastTalk.com is the new book and the movement that we've created. OneLastTalk.com or my personal website is philipmckernan.com. Amazing. So if anything that Philip was talking about today resonated with you, which I just am believing that it did because this is one of the deeper networking conversations that we've had on the show, especially just in a really long time. So I appreciate you for coming on, Philip. If any of this has resonated with you, then please, please, please go to onelasttalk.com and pick up a copy of Philip's book. A lot of the things that we're talking about today are, are, the, are topics that you're going to find in this book. And uh, he's put his heart and soul into this masterpiece. So you're gonna, definitely going to want to go check that out at onelasttalk.com. Philip, thank you so much for coming to the show today, man. I had a blast chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about how we've been able to get some of the guests to come on the show, I've created a totally free resource called Meet Your Hero. So if you'd like to connect with people you respect and admire that are difficult to reach, you're going to want to go to travischapel.com slash hero to take action and start that training today. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.